Welcome to another episode of On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. And today our guest is Tim Whitaker, who is the host, the creator, the facilitator of the New Evangelicals podcast, which is a nonprofit organization. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Tim. Thanks so much, Dr. Bruce. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking to you. So let's start with your your podcast and how that got started. It, it seems like you've been doing that for a while. Yeah, I, man, the podcast is about two years old now. Um, so it, it was birthed out of the Instagram account that I started called the New Evangelicals uh, that happened in December of 2020. That's when I started that account. And I was, you know, just kind of like, hey, I'm someone who grew up deeply embedded in conservative evangelicalism my entire life and was always committed to being a Christian, you know, in that way, because that's all I knew. And, uh, you know, I started asking questions and saying, hey, anyone else concerned about some stuff? And that's when the Instagram kind of took off. And then I realized very quickly that that. I, I already had a, a previous podcast, like in, a, in in theology, but a very different kind of flavor. It was me and two other friends of mine, very, very small, just a kind of hobby thing. And I said, hey, guys, like, I really want to get another podcast started that I think really needs to um, happen more consistently. So I started the podcast in March, I think now, I guess in 2021. And we've been going ever since, really. <laughs> and so 144 episodes later, and, you know, a, a lot of different guests ranging from uh, ranging or uh, being on all different parts of the Christian spectrum and even outside of it. And uh, we've, we've been going strong ever since. You had this other podcast with your friends, but you decided you needed to have this podcast in order to say what? Well, so my previous podcast was with two other friends who were still pretty evangelical. I was quickly drifting um, even farther from them theologically than than we ever have. And they were also not super consistent with like wanting to record. And I knew if I wanted to make a real push at kind of getting a podcast off the uh, off the floor and also kind of feel the freedom to interview whoever I wanted or say whatever I wanted without maybe getting them in hot water, um, that I had to start my own podcast. And they were totally they were totally understanding. We're still good friends to this day. So nothing bad happened. It wasn't like some big breakup or anything. But we all kind of realized that I was heading in a certain um, trajectory. And a podcast was part of that. And I wanted to make sure that we were releasing episodes every week, no matter what. Uh, and I wanted to I wanted to explore maybe conversations and land in in those conversations farther than maybe I've ever landed before. So that's why I started the, the, the second podcast. Plus, the, the name wasn't associated with the new evangelicals at the time. So I wanted to have a podcast for TNE that that, that was labeled the new evangelicals podcast. Say what? Uh, excellent. Excellent. So why the new evangelicals? Uh, I asked this question because probably like you, I've studied church history. There, of course, is this movement called fundamentalism. <laughs> really? Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it then it basically morphs into evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, a, people like uh, John R. Rice. I don't know if you know that name, Sword of the Lord, uh, you know, that, those kind of folks you know, labeled people like Billy Graham and the college that he went to, Wheaton College, you know, neo-evangelicals yeah. or things things like this. And th- these were not meant as complimentary terms. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you have people like by Graham and um, you know, Carl F.H. Henry and other people like that who, you know, want to 
rethink what fundamentalism is, make it to a, you know, make it into something that's open and and uh, you know more accepting and that sort of thing. Right, right. A little more palatable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Sometimes you wonder, like, is it just a name change? Right, um, right. Uh, and and that was uh, at the institution where I taught for many years. That was that was always a kind of question, like, is is this really is this really any different than a fundamentalist institution, or right? Do we do we just call it this because it's a nicer nicer word? Yeah. I, first off, I think that's a really fair question. I get it pretty often, and I will say though, I've never been asked that question by someone who you know professionally studies church history. So um, I'm gonna I'll give my my best possible answer, and you can tell me what your thoughts are on this. But you know, I, two things. First off, the word evangelical, you know, really means someone who brings good news. And I don't right. think that evangelicals today are bringing good news anymore. So we can start with that right away. Um, you know, I, I don't think that evangelicalism today and historically, ever since that that real fundamentalist takeover, um, has a lot of good news to bring for most people, uh, unless you're a white male in most cases, or you, you can assimilate into a power structure developed by white men. Um, the other thing, though, is that there's definitely pockets i think of evangelicalism that's done some good stuff i think about you know some of the early wesleyan tradition you know, or the early abolitionist incredibly uh, egalitarian i believe oberlin college was the first institution to ordain women uh, in the us if, if i'm not mistaken and you know incredibly committed to what we would call social justice issues and um, you know, that's important. And I, there's a book by Donald Dayton called uh, uh, Discovering an Evangelical Heritage. And I read that and I'm like, these are my people, you know, like, I don't know where they've been, but these are the, yes, like this, this resonates with me strongly. And then of course, I'm actually reading a book right now by Isaac Sharp called The Other Evangelicals. And I'm really enjoying it. And he points out how in evangelical history, there's been pockets of black uh, queer feminist evangelicals who kind of rise up and they kind of get pushed out uh, by the, that those fundamentalist institutions. So I think the word, I I totally understand a, a thousand percent why so many of us are like, I'm done with the label evangelical. I mean, my gosh, most of our work, not most, but a good chunk of it is spent critiquing the problems in evangelicalism. At the same time, I maybe I'm just too stubborn to let the fundamentalists totally have the term. So I'm like, no, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to let you know that this term is incredibly flexible. It has been historically. And there's been a fight uh, almost ever since the beginning. I'm thinking of even like the early, you know, Calvinists and like the, 18th, 19th century, they've always been fighting over who's a true evangelical. So it's not nearly as objective, I think, as as, as what we're led to believe by by some of these massive gatekeepers. So that's why I have the title. You know that that that's why we we have the title. And plus, I do think when people see it, it at least makes them curious and hopefully lets them know that you don't have to jettison the idea that that for you, the Bible is sacred and maybe even in some ways authoritative. You don't have to jettison those beliefs uh, to uh, to uh, think about better, more inclusive, loving ways forward as an evangelical in America. And I do think at this particular moment in history, and listen, I mean, Dr. Bruce, it's it's so difficult to know where you are in history, right? I mean, I mean, only history will tell that story, but it does feel like to me very much that now maybe more than ever in at least my lifetime, um, we need people who are willing to say, we have to fight for this. Like we have to fight for better ways forward and stop letting what I call evangelical gatekeepers 
control these narratives of who's a real Christian or not, or who takes the Bible seriously or not, or who takes whatever it is seriously. Um, because I've discovered that the more I've studied this stuff, the Bible or theology or the Christian tradition, the more like actually these these claims that folks like like uh, John MacArthur make, I mean, they are just not accurate. They they are not the self-appointed gatekeepers of who's a true Christian. So I, I think we, we we need that that discovery uh, more than ever, uh, I think, right now. And I think you're really right in the sense that um, evangelicalism is definitely at a turning point. Yeah. Uh, it, it could go really terrible. Um, yeah. I mean, it's already been terrible, but it could, it could get even worse. Yeah, right. Uh, but it's also possible to imagine people actually reclaiming uh, the Bible. Um, so I'll just briefly say, in my own experience, what I uh, what I grew up with was thinking that you know we evangelicals took the Bible seriously. Yeah. And as I became an adult, I came to realize that no evangelicals take certain passages of the Bible very seriously. Other passages are routinely ignored. It's as if they don't even exist. Yes. And um, and then, of course, you know, evangelicals love to say we take the Bible literally, except that, you know, when Jesus says, you know, this is my body, you know, no, they, they've got the, the Bill Clinton problem, as I as I put it, you know, what what what's the meaning of is? Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, so, uh, you know, the, the difficulty is that uh, evangelicals just don't necessarily live by what they 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 say they live by. Oh, I I I don't want to. I I do my best not to sound overtly harsh towards my 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 the tradition that that really radicalized me to be a Jesus follower, but I am convinced more than ever that there is almost like a self delusion in those spaces of like you're right. They really believe that they're taking the Bible seriously, as they like highlight maybe 15, 20 passages. And, and disregard so many others that I think are much more clear as far as the 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 authoritativeness uh for the Christian today I mean what you know and, and, and I should let your audience know like as someone who grew up homeschooled and under John MacArthur teaching and like fully embedded in the subculture of evangelicalism I I'm not someone looking from looking at this from the outside in. Um, I was someone on the inside who kind of got forced out over time. So I know how this exegesis works. I know how the interpretation works. And I remember being like 21, still very conservative, uh, you know, maybe a little more moderate politically. I was starting to wake up to the reality that maybe Rush Limbaugh isn't giving Obama a fair shake, right? I mean, I was like, you know, starting to realize that, hey, something doesn't add up here, right? And I remember thinking to myself, like, gee, um, yes, I don't, and this, this is me at the time. Yes. I think homosexuality, I guess is sinful, but there's only six verses in the whole Bible that address that. And there's like hundreds of verses that talk about the poor and like in the oppressed and the marginalized and how we have an obligation to take care of them. And yet the evangelical culture I'm a part of just seems really emphatic on at, uh, at screaming, uh, at gay people. And we don't seem to be taking these other commandments, or I would argue even more clear teachings. And again, I'm 21, not fully conservative. And I saw it then. I'm like, something doesn't add up. Like, how do you jettison James 5, which tells you to, which warns the rich business owners who are exporting their poor, look out for judgment is coming. I mean, I have, 
listen, Dr. Bruce, I've I've sat under 33 years of evangelical teaching across the whole um spectrum. Reformed, charismatic, you name it. I've been in one of those services somewhere in my life, fully, you know, soaking it in. I have never in my life heard a pastor preach out of James 5. I've never heard a pastor say, Hey, if you're in our congregation and you're a business owner, you better not better not be exploiting the poor or your workers because judgment awaits. But I can tell you I'll often how many sermons I heard about the gays or whatever other, you know, issue it, it was. So I I I think that. If you just look honestly at, at the culture, it's very clear that they say something, but their actions speaks are so different than what they actually mm -hmm. claim. You know, and I think for a lot of us now who took who want who want to take the Bible seriously, right? Um, when we did that, we go, oh, I was taught a a, a very different way of reading the Bible. Um, and it just so happened to line up with like every far right political talking point that exists. And as I, as I, as I'm taking the Bible more seriously, that's not the narrative in scripture at all. Um, you know, and also even how we got the Bible was more complicated than I was taught to believe. So I, I do, I agree with you a hundred percent. It's a long winded way of saying, I really agree with you. And I've seen, uh, this firsthand throughout my entire life. So. I, I may not uh, have as many uh, church experiences as you've had sim simply because I haven't invo been involved in any charismatic churches. Um, when I was in college, uh, and I'll say that I went to the college that I ended up teaching at, um, I started attending an Episcopal church. Mm. Uh, now, the one thing I have to say is it was an Episcopal church such that the rector of the church was considered so evangelical that one of the past presidents of the college actually asked him to become the chaplain for the college. Wow. Uh, so that gives you an idea of just how conservative he was. Um, by the way, he turned that down. And the reason he gave was he said, I'd have to take a huge salary cut in order to do that. But Anyway, so it was a church where, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, this was before the move to uh, Colorado Springs of all the mm. evangelical institutions. So there were a lot of those kind of folks who went to this church. And um, but but what happened for me is, of course, you have the common lectionary that's used, you know, in the mainline churches um, and. Most sermons in 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 mainline churches, certainly the Episcopal Church, are on the gospel for that week. And so suddenly we were reading these passages that I hadn't really heard anybody in the evangelical world talk about. Mm. Um, it was like they just ignored these passages. So anyway, that was my that was when when I started to wake up to to things. So a hundred thousand percent, yeah, totally. So. Do you want to okay so you're 21 and you're 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 at this place where you're starting to think about you know uh the the disconnect maybe we should put it that way sure the, uh the, the what what's being said isn't actually being lived that kind of thing um do you at, at this point then go to seminary or something like that or or oh no i i am a guy with some college under his belt i i am not very academic at all um i am what i, I am what you call 
someone who was a, a, always a full-time volunteer in church life, you know, was one of these people who just tried to soak in as much as possible. Um, I did a lot of music. I did a lot of odd jobs. I, I did a long, tr- a, a three-month missions trip overseas. So I was one of those people, always kind of hard to to, to, just, to stay focused on academic studies, frankly, um, at the time anyway. Um, I'm getting better, I think. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just very interesting, like thinking about how most of my life was built around this idea of I have the true Christian faith and these other people who are so-called Christians don't like Episcopalians. I mean, forget it. You guys are so far gone. I mean, who would call you a Christian, right? Catholics, definitely not, um, et cetera. So, so yeah, so my, my journey wasn't so much the academic route. It was more like lived experience of, okay, pastors, you're telling me not to take your word for it, but to examine scripture for yourself. I'm doing that. And I'm seeing some discrepancies, right? Like, like I'm literally doing what you told me to do. You told me to own my faith. All right, check. You told me to follow Jesus wherever uh, he brings me. Check. You told me to study the scripture on my own. Check. And I did that. And it turns out, I think that you're missing some stuff. (laughs) So that was kind of my trajectory. That seems uh, like a pretty good trajectory. Um, (laughs) How did do you want to elaborate on how that's how that developed in your own mind? You know, like how you you saw yourself. So let me let me let me put it uh, this way. Uh, for me, what happened was I started attending this Episcopal church, and from then on, I have always attended an Episcopal church, and until uh, until well that it. It, it gets a little complicated uh, at, at some point, but, um, and that was sort of my way of still being able to be part of the evangelical world because on Sunday, you know, I'd be hearing this other stuff. Um, and then, you know, the Monday through Friday, I'd be working at this evangelical college. And so there, there, there was a kind of disconnect between the two, but I was, I was aware of that. Sure. Um, in fact, for me, um, What's interesting, you mentioned uh, doing a short-term mission thing. I did a short-term mission thing where I went to Belgium um, to work at the Belgian Bible Institute uh, to paint uh, window frames, which was like a a terrible thing because I had no skill as a painter, (laughs) provided no training. It's just like, here's a brush, here's some paint, go at it. Good good luck. Um, And that was a really interesting summer for me in a couple different ways. One was that I came to realize that over in Belgium, evangelicals just didn't care about, you know, smoking and drinking. Whereas, yes. you know, the world I grew up in, oh, this was like really a big deal. Totally. And then and then and then I discovered that the Belgians thought that the American women who would visit there used way too much makeup and this was terribly ungodly. So they had no trouble with smoking and drinking, but the makeup. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and also that summer. I uh, took a little trip to to London. I'd never been actually to Europe, any place like that, and uh, went to Westminster Abbey and uh, thought this is such a cool place and decided to go there for a service. And I went to a service and the guy was preaching the sermon and it suddenly occurred to me, this guy could be preaching this sermon at an evangelical church. This sounds just as orthodox as anything I've heard from from. Um, you know, my own church. And that was kind of the moment when I started to think, mm, it's a, it's probably a little bit more complicated than I. <laughs> it, 
funny because my part of my story actually also involves Belgium. So I spent three months overseas. I was a month in Germany, month in Finland, month in Belgium, kind of all, um, you know, one after the next. And I was 18 and um, and very similar. OK, yeah. yeah. So kind of similar wake up call. Right. Because I remember we were in Finland and my buddy was like, hey, man, our next our next place we're going to for the month, they're a small church that meets in micro churches around the city and they meet in bars around Brussels. I remember thinking to myself that that that's not godly. Like, you know, Christians can't drink, let alone meet in bars for church. Like, are you crazy? Like what kind of like, what kind of non biblical church is this kind of vibe? Right. And and I told myself, well, I mean, my options are are get are get my own plane ticket home or go. I really don't have much of a choice. So I went, and and it, they they totally shifted uh, for me that the my perspective on what church could or couldn't be. And someone actually gave me a uh, someone I was working with there gave me a book uh, called Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola. He's a big house church dude, and his book pretty much attempts to say almost all of our modern evangelical church constructs come from pagan architecture. That's like his whole point. So the stage, it comes from pagan culture. It's it's all pagan. And I'm, I'm 18. I'm like, I'm, I'm primed to be radicalized. So I'm like, Oh my God, you're right, Frank. It's all pagan. It's all the church is corrupt. So I came back to the States with this, with this like almost paradox of, wow, church can be expressed differently also, the current church expression is totally ungodly and unbiblical. And I'm I'm also a drummer. So I'm a drummer playing in church. And I'm like, I don't know. The lights aren't biblical and the smoke and the mega church model's gotta go. So I was I was kind of in that space for a lot of years. I wanted the true gospel, right? I wanted to know what truth was. So I, in a lot of ways, my my early foundation that eventually laid down the soil for the seeds of where I'm at now to sprout, we're kind of based in a very strange concoction because I would read people like Shane Claiborne. He's, he wrote the book Irresistible uh, Revolution, which is a very social gospel-oriented book. I'm 18 reading that going, oh, this is I never thought about this before. This is really helpful. But I'm also listening to Paul Washer sermons. Paul Washer is a, is a very heavily reformed like he's almost right of john MacArthur and in his, in his reformed theology so i'm listening to both going this is cool then i'm 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 finding brian mclaren of the emergent church okay i'm kind of into that this is interesting i'm finding rob bell but then i'm also listening to matt chandler so i i have like this weird concoction of like wow there's yeah. a lot going on here so i say all that because it took a lot of time and there were questions and there were realities that I had to kind of suppress or just say, well, I'm not sure how it works, but whatever. I mean, one example of this is what happens when you're told your whole life that gay people are evil, morally depraved. They just want to sleep with you. And then you meet a gay person at work who's nothing like that, right? You go, oh, this person doesn't fit into this mold I was given of like how gay people are should be avoided. So when you have these life experiences that don't match what you're told in, in evangelical churches are the boogeymen and, and what you should be afraid of, you start thinking like, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, this, 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 this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So over time, I think all of those, for me, all of those questions and all of those moments of like, you know, maybe being a little more progressive than some of my friends, but still very evangelical, you know, uh, or, or or being critical of the church and, and having people say I'm, I'm too negative, but again, still in church. 
I think all that kind of came to a head in 2016. And I think this is the story for our purposes, for, for my organization, where a lot of us find ourselves is, is we were products of this evangelical tradition that, that told us, Hey, integrity, honesty, character, truth, you know, it, no compromise. It, it's key to being a Christian. I'm not sure about you, Dr. Bruce, but I was told many times as someone in evangelicalism, when the world tells you to move, you plant your feet and you say, no, you move. You know, this kind of idea of like, you don't compromise your morals. And then 2016 right. comes along and the people who raised me in purity culture, this sexual ethic that essentially says, hey, don't touch yourself or anyone else sexually until you're married. That That's God's ultimate standard for your life. And you did that. I did that, by the way. Right. And so when you when that happens and all of a sudden you see the people who taught you that ethic saying, hey, you know, the guy on the cover of Playboy magazine on his third marriage and who brags about sexually assaulting women. Hey, we need a commander in chief, not a pastor in chief. You go, wait, what? Like, I, I'm I, I, hold on. Pump the brakes, friends. I, I'm sorry. I, I thought that I thought that that we had to have integrity and not compromise, even if it cost us something, and we had to bear our cross and like not participate in worldly conversations around this, and always stand for truth and you know section and 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 God's biblical quote unquote biblical sexuality. I thought that was was the highest ideal here. So why are you mad at me because I'm I'm abiding by that ideal? I'm abiding by this ethic. And you're mad at me for it. You're not now. You're calling me like someone who who maybe isn't even a Christian because I can't vote for Donald Trump in 2016, right? So I think for like, a lot of us, we had that moment, and we're like, wait, something is wrong here. Like I I'm missing something. Something stinks. So I tell people a lot that um, I I call evangelicalism now the basement of Christian thought. Like you're in the basement if you to use like a house metaphor. And when you're taught that like the basement is all there is, you tend to like deal with with any stinky parts or moldy parts. But 2016 was when the stench was so unavoidable. It was so bad. I said, "No. Like I can't I I I have to figure out what's going on here." And so that kind of put me on on a trajectory of just starting to have my eyes open to like the major uh, dualism and just the blatant willingness to jettison core values or, and then, and then to pretend that like, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. No, we're not doing that. It's like, guys, you absolutely are doing that. I mean, look at how you treated Bill Clinton, Franklin Graham compared to, to compared to Trump. Like, do you think I'm dumb or blind or like, do you think I, I was born in like 2001 and never knew about Bill Clinton? Like I, we have the receipts. So that that set me off this trajectory of just having my eyes opened to the realization yeah. that evangelicalism, I would say now, is foundationally uh, corrupted, and it, it, and 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 it's the the foundation is sinking quickly, and it seems like a lot of evangelicals refuse to just realize that fact of of what's currently happening. Yeah. Um, so, I have a slightly different take on twenty sixteen. Um, and it, it's, it goes like this. Go ahead. Um, I was removed from the school where I taught in 2014. And, um, my lawyer who was dealing with me on this, uh, said to me at one point, he said, you know, he said, I've, I've done a lot of these kind of, you know, working out separation things, you know, and he said, I've never seen anybody in the business world 
treat anybody as badly as you're being treated. Wow. And I said to him, his name was Tim, by the way, <laughs> I said, Tim, I said, Tim, if you believe that God's on your side and you speak for God, you can do anything. Yeah. Dostoevsky had it exactly the opposite. It's not that if there is no God, everything is permitted. It's that if there is a God and you think you are speaking for God, mm. everything is permitted. You can do whatever you want. Um, so that's why when when Trump came along and people, you know, were uh, giving giving up on on their supposed evangelical um, commitments in terms of lifestyle and how how one lives out the faith, when that came along, it was like, well, unfortunately, I'm not all that surprised. So, yeah, uh, I, that um, yeah, that that is another story. Excuse me. I hear often from folks who were kicked out before Trump happened, right? Where they go, guys, like, where have you been? Like, we we we've either seen this or 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 we've been there. And so I, I first off, I'm sorry to hear about what happened at your university. That's horrible. And um, I think for people like me, we I, I view a lot of the work that I do as repentance because I just didn't see, I didn't know, I didn't see it. Right? I was like, I was like 25 when this all went down, and I was just, I was in the the basement. And so, like, once your eyes are opened, I, I was like, oh, my goodness, I have to keep going. And so that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I do have friends who left before me who I – I mean, I wasn't uncharitable to, but I just kind of – we just kind of drifted apart, you know? I had to reach out and say, dude, I'm so sorry I didn't see it before. Like, my bad. That, that, that one was totally on me. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It it, it takes a while. And you know, the, the difficulty, I think, is that you – are trying to process these things that sh just don't match up. You know, there's the talk and there's the the, the walk, and and you're like, you you and the and the thing is, is at least for me, growing up, and uh, you know, my father was a pastor, and then he became a, a, a professor, seminary professor, and then he became a the vice president, you know, at a seminary, and um, so I I was part of that world, you know. Um, also, one of the other other things that I love love to to mention is that when I was sixteen, I got a job as a part time janitor at my church. Mm. One of the interesting things about being a janitor is you see a lot of stuff. Mm, I believe it. Um, you, you 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 get to see how things really operate, and I don't I don't mean to say oh, and the people who were running the church were terrible right. vile people. Right. I'm just saying that yeah, they were very human, and yeah. uh, you know. Um, a lot different than a lot of the kind of perfectionist rhetoric that you hear. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, people often say you just want a perfect church. I'm like, no, we just want an accountable church, <laughs> like massive difference. Right. I know people will do bad things. I mean, I've done bad things. You've done, we we've all made serious mistakes in our life and we've hurt people like I, to, to pretend that, that like that, that only certain people do that is, is ridiculous. And the frustration for me and for a lot of people is we keep on seeing these leaders being replatformed after they've been found to 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 have been complicit in not just like, oh, one day I lost my temper and I said the F word, but like egregious, you know, abuse or gaslighting or sexual abuse or narcissistic behavior. And in evangelicalism, they're championed. Like they are they are thrown around the, the evangelical the evangelical conference world, like somehow they have. Uh, you know, something beneficial to teach people. And it's very frustrating to see that happen 
over and over and over again. And then you hear the stories from survivors of abuse who were like, yeah, I still have not had a, had anyone reach out to me from this you know, denomination. And it's like, wow, it's so ass backwards. It's so upside down. And it's so counter to the ethics that we see in Jesus, the ethics that we see the Apostle Paul you know, teach the church. So I think a lot of us are just realizing more and more how backwards so much of what evangelicalism operates on is, yet they really believe like they're standing on God's objective moral truth and that anyone who comes against them is somehow demonic. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to have conversations with people who have that view because like, because like, like, like you said earlier, if you think that God has approved of whatever it is that you think you're doing, anything is permissible. So how do you, how do you get past that conversation is beyond me. Yeah, it's just difficult. And, and I, I think the, the the way I've kind of dealt with it over time is I pick and choose people that I think I might actually be able to have a real conversation with. Yeah. And people who clearly just don't want to listen. I, I, I generally just avoid having conversations with people like that. Yeah. I, I am learning more and more, uh, you know, not to do that. I mean, we, we get hundreds of DMS a day and sometimes I get someone who, who just wants to argue. I'm like, listen, I will engage with you for like three or four back and forths, but just know we're going to get nowhere. I'm going to say something. You'll have the same rebuttal. I'll have the same rebuttal. We'll go in a circle. We'll end up just, you know, eventually not convincing anyone. So why are you here to waste my time? You know? Yeah. 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 Um, And that has to do, well, I I, I shouldn't probably go down this road, but I, I just want to say that has to do with uh, the way human beings know and how we come to the positions that we 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 hold, um, we we tend to think that all of our positions are well thought out, carefully reasoned. But the reality is, and this is something that I I learned from uh, studying with a particular philosopher in Germany. Mm. It, the reality is that so much of what we know we know intuitively, and intuitive things are not part of the logical structure of our our, our reasoning. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, well, I, I I'll just leave it there. Uh, but but that's to say that that there are a lot of things that people hold to that are not the product of you know careful reason and you know argumentation and logic and such. And that's one of the reasons why it it becomes difficult to have a conversation about this. Well, if you ever write a book or if you have written a book that 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 gives the secret to having those conversations, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> because there are days where I'm just like I don't know how to communicate like this point that would be effective and someone actually hearing me. Right? And I think one of the problems that I have is I have to wrestle with not ignoring those people and their perspectives, but it's difficult because I've heard them already. Like when you grow up 33 years in conservative evangelicalism, you've heard every argument and you believed all those arguments for like a decade. So not to sound like arrogant, but you're not going to tell me something new that I haven't heard before. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, I, I don't want to come across condescending or like, well, yeah, whatever. I've already heard this argument, but at the same time, I know how the conversation is going to go. If we talk about abortion, you're going to call it murder. Then we're going to talk about what is or what isn't murder. Then we're going to go down this rabbit hole of like, well, now I'm a murderer. You know, like this, it's 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 this whole line of thinking. Um, or if we talk about queer people, it comes down to grooming and like what that means. It's like, guys, I know these arguments, and like they're to me, I'm just not convinced. 
So um, I need almost like a different way into that conversation because I don't want to argue with people. I want to invite people you know, into better paths forward that I think are more loving, inclusive, merciful, fruits of the spirit, right? Instead of this like harsh cruelty and dehumanization that we see coming from these spaces so often. Yeah. Um, I don't know if if this will, if this, if you'll relate to this um, point, I am a little older than you are. And um, I grew up at a time when the evangelical view regarding abortion was this is something between a woman and God. Yeah. This is something that, you know, we, we have a position on. And then um, in 19, what was 19, I think it was 1979 or 1980, um, this film series uh, with Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop, whatever happened to the human race mm. came out. And, um, I don't know exactly how I ended up going to 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 see this, but one of the things that struck me, even at the time, mm. you know, this is uh, I, I wasn't that old. I you know, seventy eight. I would be eighteen. That uh, gives you an idea of how old I am. Um, but even then, what was so obvious to me was that this presentation that we were being given was not really based on logic. It was based on fear because the argument went something like this. If we allow abortion, then everything up to and including what happened with the Nazis will happen. Mm. And even, you know, as an 18-year-old kid, I'm like, okay, (laughs) that just doesn't seem likely. Like, we're going to be making lampshades out of human skin if we love for abortions? No, I I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I, so I was born in 88. Um, but I have read, you know, the statements by the SBC when abortion was first starting to kind of come around as a conversation, the Southern Baptist convention and how they pretty much had a pretty pro-choice position, you know, like, Hey, we're in favor of abortion. Uh, as long as it, you know, if it endangers the, the, um, physical well-being, the emotional well-being of the mother, yada, yada, yada. So I agree. I mean, you know, you, you can track this stuff pretty quickly and see how a lot of what we're standing on comes from somewhere. And it doesn't really come from the, um, sources that people say it is, especially around abortion, right? Like people often think that, that the moral majority was formed around abortion, which is really an effective myth (laughs) that has been told, and and bought wholesale by evangelicals because the reality, as we both know, is is much bleaker. You know, Jerry Falwell uh, Sr. was a, a pretty staunch school segregationist, and it was integration that really got him and I would argue Bob Jones and you know Paul Weirich way more politically motivated to 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 stand up for their religious freedom, which at that point was to keep black people away from, away from white people, you know, educationally. Uh, and then when that kind of went out of vogue. They had to look for another, you know, issue to kind of rally the troops around. And an abortion, what was that one? So it is interesting because you you're not told that when you're an evangelical, you're just told that abortion's murder. We're going to march for life, at, you know, in Washington. You should come. So I did. I had the sign. I mean, I used to have a. I used to. I'm not sure the makeup of your audience, but in evangelicalism, there was a pretty like um musically hardcore world like underground hardcore music that was just super punk rock super rebellious and that was that was my world i mean i i'm a drummer i love that stuff i love heavy music and there was a, an organization called rock for life 
And they would make like these really provocative t-shirts. And I had one. It said in bold, like huge font, abortion is homicide. Then on the back, it said, you will uh, you will uh, not silence my message. You will not mock my God. You will stop killing my generation. That's the three things it says on the back. And I wore that shirt like the proudest, you know, Jesus loving, you know, re re rebel against the world's, you know, ideology. I, I I wore it proudly, right? And so, like when you're when you're when you're brought up in that kind of world, that like to be counterculture is to be this way. And then you realize at age like 28 or 30 that actually that whole system was built on initially segregation and they shifted tactics to gain political power and abortion was that tactic. It wasn't like abortion was an issue inherently. It became an issue to gain power. You go, wait a second, what? Like, how does that work? So I think a lot of people, again, in my situation, and there's many of us, are just kind of frustrated with like, feeling just we we feel very duped and very misled right we feel like we we were taught this thing as absolute objective and always us being on the good side turns out in our history we've been on the wrong side a lot and that's that's painful to admit but it's reality yeah it is reality um evangelicals um well, Episcopalians uh, aren't exactly exemplary you know in the, in this respect <laughs> I spent some time at a, a at an Episcopal seminary in New York City, and um, uh, there was I had an office in this room, and and I was sort of wondering why why there was a main room and there were two smaller rooms that, that were functioned as bedrooms, and then somebody pointed out that oh well you see when the seminary was founded back in you know in eighteen something or maybe maybe even seventeen something, um, it would have been normal for the white seminarian to bring his black servant and so the black servant would live in the other bedroom and you know the white Jesus. <laughs> yeah so, so yeah i you know that's something again that's not really talked about you know in the episcopal world um unfortunately yeah i, I wish i i think episcopalians have largely made up for you know uh, their sins by, by by being much more sort of accepting and being on the forefront of some of these kinds of issues mm. But yeah, that I think that's the the difficulty is that one thinks that these positions have been taken, you know, with great care and a great conviction, and when in fact the reality is they've been taken because they pr promote power. They they allow the people who preach these kinds of things to gain power politically and otherwise. I I mean, I'm learning that more and more, right? And so I, I think the challenge then for me is like, well, I don't want to repeat that. Like, I don't want to fall into that trap of like, oh, like if, if I if we just have more political power, it's somehow going to just solve all the problems. At the same time, and maybe, you know, I would like your thoughts on this, Dr. Bruce, but I do feel like where we're currently at in history is incredibly dire. Like, I mean, we're recording this, you know, a day after a former sitting president who was just found liable for sexually assaulting a woman was put on cable news to have a quote-unquote town hall discussion like what what are we doing right where he then just fire hose lies for the entire segment i mean just i mean you you need to write maybe a four or five volume book 
going through every sentence and then debunking everything he said that was so blatantly not true, right? But like it's there, and and this is this wasn't on Fox News. This, this was on like like a mainstream cable news network. If you catch my drift, right? It's not on OAN or something. And I'm just like, wow. I don't know. I don't know. Like where we go from here. It's an election cycle next year. Uh, evangelicals historically have always swung for the, the Republican, no matter what. I mean, the, the, Trump's voting block went up for evangelicals in 2020. Up. It was like 75% in 2016. It was like 80 something percent in 2020. That is not a good sign. Like that is, that no. gives me no hope for the institutions that I'm a part of, frankly, you know? So I, I don't know where we're headed, but it just, it, it looks very bleak, very bleak. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm sort of at the place where I think um, people uh, in the evangelical world so much want power that they're willing to sacrifice anything and everything to get that yeah i well i think that's clear i think that is ev listen when you have someone on a hot mic bragging about sexually assaulting women and the response is we need we need a commander in chief not a pastor in chief like you're done you've sold your soul you i mean evangelicals and i've said this before publicly they are the people on the mountain where satan offers them power if they just kiss the ring and they did they willingly kneeled down and said whoever we got to sell out to to get to get this city under our control, we will sell out to, and they have, and they continue to. You know, I, I think people really underestimate the funding, the power, the influence that white evangelicalism has. Uh, the Christian nationalist movement that 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 is completely being incubated inside of these institutions with almost with, with very little pushback, I should say. There is some, but not a lot. I mean, they are birthing. You know, one of the most dangerous ideologies i think that has come along in a long time that has serious power behind it that's what makes it so dangerous right it's not that like the majority of americans are christian nationalists the majority are not but the funding the political power um the the ability to reach people on social media that comes from these far-right media pundits and evangelical leaders and that is incredibly discouraging to me given where they are um as far as their political views yeah yeah um so the dif difficulty for me, and this is more or less what you've just said too, is that it's it's it, it's kind of a dual problem. One is that evangelicals don't actually live up to their values, but it's also the problem that evangelicals. So you know, growing up, I was told that you know what's important about evangelicalism is it's the truth. And we care about truth, and these other people are telling lies. And then we have a situation where now lies become the truth. Totally. And it, uh, it, it it's as if one doesn't even you know know what to do about this. And uh, you know what's interesting for me is that you wouldn't know this, but one of the things I've specialized in over the years is is postmodern thought. So, you know, Derrida and Foucault and other people like that. Um, and, you know, so when I I first started teaching, there were people who were kind of suspicious of, you know, like, why, why are you teaching somebody like Derrida? You know, like, isn't he the enemy? Right. But, you know, from my point of view, Derrida never, ever, ever suggested that things were relative or that, you know, like you could just make the facts mean whatever you want. Derrida never, ever suggested anything like that. Hmm. Uh, 
but the interesting thing is this thing that they were accusing Derrida of doing, they are now very openly doing themselves. Yeah. So uh, another way of making this point would be um, in the evangelical world, there's often talk about relativists. Yes, all the time. <laughs> now, you probably realize that relatives, relativists don't actually exist. Hmm. Um, all that exists are people who have differing ideas uh, regarding you know, how much or how little is acceptable of this or that or something like that. But there's there's no no actual person who lives like a relativist. There might there might be, you know, high school students who who think they're cool by by identifying as as a relativist, but these people really don't exist. Um but unfortunately now evangelicals <laughs> seem to have become the very thing that they said they were so against and they didn't want it a part of. Well, I mean, in so many ways, they're, you know, I think about when the Apostle Paul says they, whoever he's talking to, they've traded the truth for a lie. I'm like, man, if that's if that's if that's not the story of American evangelicalism in a nutshell, I don't know what is. I don't I don't know what is. Like they have traded the truth for a lie. They have taken on political propaganda perspectives that are so blatantly not just false but also dangerous. I mean, don't forget. The loudest voices during COVID about not wearing masks and the and the jab, the jab, it, it came from right-wing evangelicalism, right? This stuff like is dangerous. It, it's not just that, okay, they believe in a flat earth. It's that they want everyone else to acknowledge that that we live on a flat earth. It's like, no, like I'm not going to do that, right? And so it is frustrating to watch so many in my own faith tradition just kind of become the very thing that they warned me against you know people who who wouldn't be truthful people with no integrity people who who are doing things for um you know alternative motives uh, guys like look in the really with all due respect look in the mirror just look at what at what the institutions and cultures you're a part of do all the time i mean even statistically at one point I'm not sure what the number is now, but at one point, like something like 20, maybe, oh, what's the number? It was a very high number, uh, percentage of evangelicals believe that Joe Biden was never really elected to be the true president. Like, how do you, how do you, you're going to try and tell me that I have to take your word that you are sitting on God's objective truth for the Bible, but you can't even acknowledge what we can objectively verify about our election process. Somehow I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to square those two things. Okay, so Joe Biden wasn't elected, and also you're giving me the objective standard of Genesis 1. Okay. <laughs> like, how am I supposed to believe that, right? So I, I think, like, for so many of us, it just this whole thing crumbles once you see um, the um, the house of cards that it really is. Yeah, yeah. So maybe on a somewhat more positive note, do you – have well, you must have hope for the future, or you wouldn't be doing a podcast. Um, I, at least, at least it would be very, it would be very cynical of you to to do a podcast in which you're exposing these <laughs> things without, without any, you know, hope that this might, you know, produce good fruit rather than rotten fruit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I, so we as a nonprofit, you know, we do a lot of work more than just the podcast. You know, we we do three things. We hold space for folks who have been marginalized by the evangelical church. 
We advocate for accountability in these spaces, and we help people explore the Christian tradition beyond that basement of evangelical fundamentalism. So I, it's funny. I just yesterday I was in my Instagram stories. And I did kind of a series on why I do have hope, and um, you know there are a couple of reasons that I, I mentioned. You know, one of the first ones is that it does seem like a lot of these evangelical institutions are losing people. The SBC uh, Southern Baptist Convention reported its greatest ever single year decline in membership um, ever. Um, and honestly, to me, that's good news. I'm I'm thrilled to hear that, frankly, because that that institution is just it's it's built. First off, it's built on maintaining slavery. That that, that that's his actual history. But then it it recently came under fire for covering up decades of sexual abuse. So in my mind, good. There should be an exodus there. Um, the other thing is that I and I can't say who for confidentiality, but I I do talk to some pretty decently high profile evangelical leaders. Um, who are realizing that we have a major problem and, and they're, they're moving toward inclusion. They're moving toward, some of them are reading folks like Thomas Ord, who's a process theologian. So they're really reading stuff beyond their bubble. And I'm like, Hey, okay, cool. And some of these people, you know, they're pretty powerful. They're pretty influential. I mean, names that, that, that we'd all know. So it gives me, even though I'm very impatient and I just want them to pull the pin on their grenade and throw it. And let's just, let's just say what needs to be said and just like make the stand. Um, I'm hopeful that that in the next couple of years, we'll see more of a move uh, to rethink some of our theology that has ca- caused harm to so many. And the last thing that gives me hope is is people. I, I talk to people all the time who have similar stories to me or to you who are like, hey, I'm committed to making the change. Like, what, what do we have to do? Do we have to do we have do we have to rally? Do we have to protest? Do we have to write people? Do we have to, you know, help build new new things and new ways forward? They're all in. Like they are motivated to make things better. So I'm certainly not ignorant to the fact that this is a very uphill battle. I mean, American evangelicalism, um, historically, fundamentalists tend to win the actual, like, you know, gatekeeping of the institutions and of the, the theology. But there's always this remnant always in our history that tries to swing the bat as hard as they can to change things. And then some of that sticks and it kind of pushes things forward. So I I definitely am hopeful in that sense. And I also realize that like, this is a very critical time, um, not just for evangelicalism. I don't think I'd be so concerned if this was really an insular problem. The reality is that these spaces impact our neighbors who are not Christian. They impact Mm -hmm. our neighbors who have no clue about these institutions because these people want political power. They want to enact very much Christian nationalist type of laws in our society. I mean, Texas right now is debating if they should allow chaplains to replace potentially mental health counselors in public schools that would not require parental consent. That's a pretty big deal. You know, uh, they want the Ten Commandments posted in the cl- in every classroom. I mean, it's like, guys, what are we doing here? So I, I I do think that that people who have who have who have seen how the sausage has been made, so to speak, uh, have an, an obligation now more than ever to be the canary in the coal mine to just squawk and chirp and yell as as much as possible to bring awareness to what is coming and why it must be resisted. And do you think that, and, and maybe maybe it's a both end approach, uh, but do you think that the way forward is to work within these organizations to create other organizations? Um, do you understand what yeah. I'm, I'm asking? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. I am incredibly pragmatic, like maybe to a fault. I will take whatever I can get. 
I will take yeah. anyone who's willing to try and push inside the institution forward towards inclusion, towards just, I mean, we, I, I'll even take just moderate at this point. Like, forget forget progressive. I'll take a moderate who's like, yeah, man, like we can find some middle ground here. So I'll take anything I can get. Long term, are these institutions sustainable? I think as people wake up and realize what they what, what they've been built on, Right, I think that we're going to realize that the institution will need to change so much it will cease to be that institution. Um, so I do think long term it will have to be uh, a reimagination of what our church structures look like. But the good news is this is the history of the church, right? This this is nothing new. Like people, and I I feel this too, get really focused on here and now, and it feels like this is the only time that things have been so dire or, or so bad. No. They, 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 we've been here before many times and, and we've survived, you know, uh, but we survive because people get active. They get involved. They they make the change happen that, that they need to see. They push the church expression to shift based on whatever that need is. And so I think, and again, it's hard to know. History will tell the story, but I really feel like we're in, we're, we're, we're hitting the crest of that wave of another big reform, another big shift, another big move towards pushing things forward, towards progression. Um, and so it will take a lot of people to do it and a lot of work. But I I, I think we're I think we're I think we're there ultimately. And of course, you know, the interesting thing is I, I now live in Scotland mm. and um uh one of one of my former colleagues uh who let's just say is the son of and nephew of probably the two most important Scottish theologians of the 20th century, um, said to me a number of years ago, I think the Church of Scotland has about 10 years, and mm. then it's over. Mm. And I would say at this point, I think it's already over. Mm. Um, so for Scotland, uh, the way forward will not be in churches. But there's something that I do want to say that you might find interesting and also hopeful. Growing up the way we did, we were told that being a Christian means you have to accept Jesus as your personal savior, you have to do this, you got to believe this, blah, 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 blah. Um, in fact, um, there were a couple uh, people in the theology department uh, at the school where I taught who taught an introductory theology course. And as one of the assignments, they said to the students, okay, so write down a list of exactly what you have to believe in order so that, you know, you get to the pearly gates and St. Peter says, yep, you believe the right things. So right. You can go in. Right. Yes. And, and of course, what was so um, amazing about the assignment was students suddenly realized that it was really difficult to come up with like the definitive right. thing. You must believe these because, because they had been told like, don't include any extra thing and don't leave anything out. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, but what I what I want to say is is this. I've come to realize that our culture, this is partly be, because of reading Nietzsche and and a whole lot of other things. Um, our culture is so thoroughly Christian in its basic assumptions that I don't think Christianity is going to die anytime soon. Totally. But but the thing is, it may well be that given churches may have to die in order that Christianity can live. Yeah. I, I 
I tell people often, like, listen, this religion has been around for 2000 years. Now we could be the generation where it, it dies, but I would, I would be shocked. I mean, that, that it's like saying maybe Christ comes back in our generation. I mean, I guess that's plausible, but the chances of it happening are like slim to none. So like, why are we, why are we trying to pretend like at any day now this is going to happen? And I agree. And also I, I think, you know, Christian Christianity is so big. It's so massive. The rooms inside of it are all over the place. It's complicated is why I tell people, like, I understand how we grew up in a very unhealthy expression of the Christian tradition, but that doesn't discount the the very healthy expressions of the Christian tradition that have, have, have given to society some beautiful and great things. Right. And so right. I'm not, I, I'm not one of these people who's like, uh, Christianity is just garbage. Throw it in the trash. It's like, well, in my, from my view, that's kind of ignorant. Um, it's it's not nearly that that black and white. It's not that simple. And I don't want to become a fundamentalist all over again, right? And so for me, what I say is like, I think that the evangelical expression in America of Christianity needs to either be completely turned upside down and reinvented, or something new that's more beautiful, more maybe ancient, quote unquote, needs to take its place. Because I'll tell you what evangelicals are not deeply formed theologically. They're not deeply formed ethically. They're just not. They think that they are, but they're not. And we need a renaissance of people who are like, no, we take the Bible seriously, which is why we we believe that that student loan debt should be forgiven. It's biblical. You know, like, like there are ways to advocate, I think, from a Christian perspective, um, there are things to advocate for individually and societally that love all of our neighbors. And and I think the current expression of evangelicalism, instead of instead of subverting empire, wants to become the empire. And whenever that happens throughout Christianity, it's a recipe for disaster. It's violent. It's bloody. There's death. It does not end well. So I think a lot of us are realizing that and trying to to offer better paths forward than like where where things currently seem to be heading. Yes. Well, a good friend and I. Uh edited a book that came out in 2008 called Evangelicals and Empire, in which mm, oh, we asked, I should get that. We asked the question, of course, Bush was president at that time. And, and, and basically the question was, you know, have evangelicals aided and abetted empire or have they, you know, stood there and said, yeah, we don't want this. Right. And of course, what we got was a mixture, you know, people yeah. saying, oh, well, evangelicals have done an awful lot to aid and abet empire, but they've also, as you've said, uh, pointed uh, pointed to to something different, something other. I remember reading Don Dayton's Discovering an Evangelical Heritage years and years ago, and thinking to myself, "Hmm, that moment was was very important for me to to see that there there really is a history here that has some really wonderful things about it." Yes, yes. The first president of the college where I taught was a good friend of a guy named Charles Finney. Oh, yeah. Charles Finney. And at that point, Charles Finney was the president of Oberlin. Hmm. And the usual Wheaton, Wheaton College versus Oberlin narrative goes, well, we stayed true to the gospel. Yeah. But I've often said well, we stayed true to certain aspects of the gospel, but the kinds of radical stuff 
uh, there's an entire chapter uh, uh, in Dayton's book on Jonathan Blanchard, who was the first president of Wheaton, who yeah. hid escaping slaves in his basement. There, there were black students almost from the beginning of the school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, there is a heritage and it's well worth re recovering and discovering. I love that. I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Tim. It's been wonderful to have you on the podcast and I look forward to many, many future discussions. Uh, likewise, you'll be on my podcast pretty soon. So I'm looking forward to that conversation because I have a lot of questions for you about this deconstruction term. So uh, we'll, we'll dig into it. <laughs> all right. Excellent. Look forward to that. Thanks. Okay.